Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. After navigating the relatively tranquil waters of Paul's great hymn of love over the last three weeks, we find ourselves this morning plunging into the rapids of a rocky and controversial passage of Scripture. It's been wrapped in controversy, certainly in modern times, although that hasn't been the case through much of church history, particularly just in the last 100 years and specifically in the last 30 years. 1 Corinthians 13 and the second half in particular has become one of the focal points in a raging debate regarding the practice of charismatic gifts in the church. That's because this passage uh, this morning that we come to, which we, uh, which we find talks about what's commonly designated as charismatic gifts, clearly states, as we'll see, that these gifts will cease. You can see that most explicitly in verse 8. When Paul says, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So this passage is unambiguously speaking to the issue of cessation or the passing away of certain spiritual Gifts And Paul specifically speaks of at least three, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Now, not many are going to dispute that that is the topic, that this is really about the cessation of these gifts. But what has been disputed, and specifically over the last 30 years, as I mentioned, what has been increasingly challenged is the timing that Paul indicates for when these gifts will cease. As I said, for much of church history, this wasn't much of a debate. For, for, for the first 1,900 years of the church, the virtual unanimous testimony regarding these gifts was that they had ceased. A few groups would rise up occasionally, once or twice through that period of time, claiming to have prophetic powers, but mostly for the purpose of predicting the end of the world and were quickly dismissed as heretics and false prophets. In fact, if you begin with the writings of some of the earliest church fathers, what you find is that these miraculous gifts like tongues and and prophecy are nowhere alluded to or found in any of their documents. Clement of Rome, who wrote a letter to the Corinthian church in the year 95 AD, just four decades after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, discusses many problems in the Corinthian church, but he never once mentions the issue of tongues or prophecy, either positively or negatively. Justin Martyr, church father from the second century, claimed to have traveled through many of the churches of his day and published uh, numerous volumes on a number of subjects and yet never once mentions tongues at all much less tongues being active in the church. As a matter of fact, he published during his lifetime several lists of spiritual gifts, and not one of them ever includes the gift of tongues as one of those gifts. Origen, the church father from the third century, never mentions tongues in any of his writings. In one of his writings against the heretic Celsus, he explicitly argues 
that miraculous gifts of the apostolic age were temporary and were not exercised by Christians in his day. Chrysostom, who lived from 347 to 407, one of the greatest of the post-New Testament church writers, he comments on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 that the whole place is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and also by their cessation, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. For Chrysostom, this cessation had taken place so long ago, he couldn't even accurately define what miraculous gifts were anymore because he claimed not to know anyone with any recollection of what they were like. Another church father, Augustine, who lived shortly after him, commenting on Acts 2, said, In the earliest times the Holy Spirit fell on them that believed and they spoke with tongues. These were signs adapted to that time. For there was required to be that evidence of the Holy Spirit. That thing was done as an evidence, and it passed away. Church historians, church fathers then, have unanimously maintained and agreed that these miraculous gifts ceased. They ceased from the time of the apostles. The only exception, as I said, were occasional men, one named Montanus, who was branded quickly by the church as a heretic because he had a not only a deformed ecclesiology, but even a deformed soteriology and, and a doctrine of sanctification. But for the next 1,800 years after Montanus, almost no one made claim to these miraculous gifts. Occasional visions, occasional prophets, who, as I said, may have claimed to know the timing of the return of Christ or the end of the world, but... Within mainstream Christianity, there was never any widespread embrace of the continuation of these gifts. Beginning of the 20th century, there has been, however, an effort to establish and to claim a restoration of the charismatic phenomenon. Coming out of a holiness movement in the 19th century, Pentecostalism uh, that we know today was born in 1900. It continued mostly on the fringes of society and the fringes of, uh, of Christianity until about 1960 when it gave birth to what's known as the charismatic movement, which brought the practice or the so-called practice of many of these gifts into mainline denominations like Episcopalianism, Lutheranism, even Baptist and Catholic churches. People embraced this as a new wave of enthusiasm come to meet the deadness of all of their churches, which had dominated them for so long. And out of that charismatic movement, a decade later, there arose serious efforts for the first time to try to validate from Scripture the notion that there was taking place in our time a restoration of these gifts, which had been essentially absent from the church for all of its history. So, in that effort, much of the energy has been focused right where we are today, 1 Corinthians 13, and these specific statements about cessation regarding the spiritual gifts. This has unfortunately become uh, a minefield, a battlefield and a minefield in this debate, and it, this passage has suffered, first of all, under the weight of many, many 
presuppositions which are imported into the text and used as a grid or a guide to mold it and make it say whatever the interpreter wants it to say. And also from an unfortunate disregard for the whole place of verses 8 through 13 within the overall context of the chapter itself and 1 Corinthians as a book. You may remember the context. There was a question that had been posed to the Apostle Paul in a letter regarding spiritual gifts, which he began at the beginning of chapter 12 to answer. But he not only answers their immediate question about spiritual gifts, he takes opportunity to confront what appears to be an undue focus by the Corinthian church on miraculous or sensational spiritual gifts. Many in the Corinthian church had become particularly enamored with speaking gifts, and not just speaking gifts, but those which claim to have some supernatural element, some divine revelatory element to them. They were fascinated with these gifts and even were arrogant towards one another, towards those who didn't have them. They had essentially a practice in spiritual gifts which was lacking in love, lacking in perspective. And so Paul has attempted to correct all of this, first of all, by reminding them that the gifts that they have are sovereignly distributed by God. He gives to them not based on our merit, not based on our worth, but as He wills and for the good of the church. They have nothing to do with who we are personally. And even in the bestowing of these gifts, He reminds us that God often bestows honor on the less spectacular gifts and uses them, making them vital to the functioning of the church. But of course, at the core of his whole argument here, the core of his correction is, is this chapter 13, which you may remember he says, or he designates as a more excellent way, a more marvelous goal, a higher ambition, if you will, a more exceptional aim uh, or a superior spiritual gift, more central in everything we do in ministry, a more clearly a cardinal in our worship of God. And this is, of course, way, uh, the pathway of love. It is this exaltation of love that Paul has set in contrast to their infatuation with the miraculous gifts. And so as we come to the second half of this, we need to understand that what Paul's saying here is all for that purpose. It's all for the purpose of driving home this more excellent way of emphasizing to them what is essentially the temporal nature of the very gifts that they are so fervently pursuing. These things that they're making central in the issue of their worship that they are finding their identity is in what they are seeking as, as the end all of their ministry, the things that they are so focused on, Paul is telling them, have no significant future. They're things which, in his words, are going to pass away. They're going to cease. That is the gist of his argument. By the very nature of their limited duration, you ought to place limited value on them. Now, he articulates this argument and emphasizes the limited duration of these gifts in four ways. 
he first of all emphasizes the limited duration of these miraculous gifts by a contrast with love. He gives it to us in verse 8, very simple contrast, telling us that whereas the gifts will cease, love will never end. He's really launching out of what he said at the end of verse 7 when he talks about love enduring all things. And it's out of that thought that Paul states in verse 8, love never ends. Or some translations say love never fails. That has been problematic because some people have taken that as some sort of pragmatic promise. As if somehow uh, you can employ love as a tool of influence or manipulation That if you will just simply love, there is a biblical promise of always having success, whether it be changing your husband or changing your wife or changing your employer or whatever it might be. People have latched on to that terminology, love never fails. Well, this isn't what Paul has in mind at all. He's not talking about some pragmatic idea here, some some guaranteed promise of success. What he's saying is that love never ends. That is, it never fades. Oh, it might fade in you, and you might find yourself in less faithful days, less obedient days, less reflecting love in some days than others, but it doesn't necessarily mean that love itself is in any way less important, less relevant, less exalted. It always is, always should be the center, in other words, of our pursuits. And the reason for that, of course, is because, as we've stated a number of times, it's, it's, it's God's character. God himself says he is love. And since it's a part of God's character, the supremacy, the beauty, the prominence of love will always be central to who we are as children of God. And it ought to always be center of what we are seeking because we ought always be seeking God, of course. So we don't pursue love because of some pragmatic scheme. We pursue it because this is who God is and we want to be like Him. We mentioned it a few weeks ago that our motivation always in loving other people is just that. Not because we are just trying to create some change in them. Our primary motivation is always so that we can be like God in some small way, reflect Him. The one who loves us And loves even his enemies so graciously. So Paul says, look, this is what love is. It is the unfading, unceasing, never-ending virtue and goal of our Christian life. In contrast to these three gifts, he's telling us that love has no last day. It's never outdated, never grows old, never decays. It's never something which is to be laid aside as obsolete. Quite the contrary with the gifts that he mentions here. They were so important to these Corinthians. Paul says they are coming to an end. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge. Not knowledge in a general sense, but knowledge in the sense that Paul has used it in these chapters. That is the gift of knowledge. The, the gift of, of knowledge, which we talked about back in chapter 12, this is what will pass away. He uses a couple of different words to describe this cessation, but they, all, they both basically mean the same thing. They're going to be eliminated. They're going to be eliminated. 
He used it back in chapter 6 when he talked about food, which goes into our digestive system and is eliminated. They're going to pass away. There may be some indication as Paul switches these words back and forth. He uses a certain word, katargeo, uh, to render something useless or or unproductive. It's used to refer to soil, which is no longer productive for growing crops. And he uses it to reference particularly the gifts of knowledge and the gifts of prophecy. Maybe, some people suggest, leaving the door open that they may become productive again. However, when it comes to tongues, he uses a particular word for cessation. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. All with the same basic idea, it will just stop altogether. The point for them is this. It's the things you've been so fervently pursuing, the things which have become so central, the focus of your Christian life, they have a limited duration. And so you should put limited value on them point's obvious. And with that, Paul just rips the legs out from under their spiritual standing. Because the very thing on which they were exalting themselves was the very thing that Paul says is destined to pass away. They're like a bunch of people taking a joy ride in a hot air balloon, not realizing that it's going to eventually run out of steam, run out of air, or run out of fuel, we would say. Paul wants to tell them there's a more steadfast a more enduring vehicle, if you will, that can carry you through ministry. It will never end. It will never fail. And that is the virtue of love. Well, Paul secondly emphasizes this limited duration of these miraculous gifts by speaking to them in verses 9 and 10 about the coming of the complete. He says... He says that these gifts will be done away, or he explains, I should say, why they will cease and be done away with. And the bottom line is what he tells us in verses 9 and 10 is that they're going to be done away with because what they provide is incomplete. It is partial. And you can hear it as you just read the verses. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes the partial will pass away. In other words, as rich as the early church was, by having prophets, by having miraculous gifts, by having people who heard directly from God, as rich as they were in those days with all of those gifts, they could never lay claim to more than simply part of what God had to reveal. And Paul's telling them that their prophecies and their knowledge that God would reveal to them are at best incomplete. That would have been a jolt. A jolt for these Corinthians who apparently were all about emphasizing the abundance of their knowledge. Remember back in chapter 8, this is the thing Paul says that made them puffed up. Their, their knowledge made them puffed up and arrogant. Or even in the first couple of verses of this chapter, he, 
He's really addressing their arrogance when he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. Even if they had all the knowledge that was available to them, without love, he says, it was useless. But in reality, they didn't even have all knowledge. Paul says, all you have is a part. All you have is a slender piece. And it's this incomplete nature of what the gifts have to offer that made them destined for removal. That's his explanatory note here. He says in verse 10 that this will actually take place, this this removal will actually take place when he says the perfect comes. The word here is probably the center of the whole debate in the chapter, the word teleon, translated various ways in the New Testament, sometimes as perfect, sometimes as mature, sometimes as complete, always determined by the context. And in this context, the word is clearly set in contrast to what? To that which is in part. A key term that's repeated over and over again, not only in verses 9 and 10, but even again down in verse 12, Paul states it again. Now I know in part. Meros is the word. It is clear. It's unambiguous. It's always translated the same way. No matter where you find it, it clearly means that which is partial. I've mentioned this time and time again, but when you're studying the Bible, when you're particularly studying a a, a word in the Greek, You always determine its meaning by context. And you always choose the nearest context available to you. That is, you begin, first of all, with the phrases of the sentence. Secondly, with the sentences around them. Thirdly, with the paragraphs beyond that. And beyond that, the books and in the New Testament itself. And what we have here, what we've emphasized a number of times, is that you often know a meaning by uh, what a word is contrasted with. And so in this case, the contrast is very, very specific. It is partial versus complete. Partial versus complete. So obviously when Paul's making this contrast, what he's talking about is the coming of that which completes what has only up to that time been partial. Now there are a lot of other concepts people have attempted to import here to suggest that the word teleon should have some other meaning, all of them reaching further and further beyond the immediate context. Some have tried to suggest the word means mature, that the coming coming end of these gifts would come when a certain maturity takes place. In fact, they they even take note down in verse 11 that Paul uses an analogy of being like a child. And that so he's talking about the coming maturity of the church, whenever that might be. It doesn't fully explain, however, the use of Paul's other analogy in verse 12. And as a matter of fact, it commits the interpretive error of exalting the metaphor over the central issue in the context, rather than the central concept itself. Paul's not really telling us here about maturity. He's using a a, a metaphor of maturity to drive home what he states in verses 9 through 10. Others have tried to suggest the word is best understood uh, as perfect. One of certainly the possible 
uh, interpretations, one of the possible translations of this word. It's used that way in other places uh, throughout the Bible, and it was that which was originally used in the King James and has been followed by many translations since, perhaps only the New Revised Standard and the New NIV, the only major exceptions in, in modern time that haven't used that. And so interpreters have translated this word perfect, uh, many of them in, uh, implying or suggesting that what's being discussed here is our state of perfection at the second coming of Christ. Or, or some people even talk about the second coming as, as that which is perfect itself. And so they jump down, for example, to verse 12 and suggest that Paul introduces this phrase face to face. And when he does that, what he's doing is he's introducing the, what we call the parousia, the second coming of Christ. That phrase is certainly used from time to time to speak about our fellowship with Christ, our seeing him face to face. But verse 12 isn't talking about that at all. As a matter of fact, Paul is using it in the metaphor of a mirror. And so obviously, he's not talking about seeing the face of Christ. He's talking about seeing our own face. Yet people continually import these ideas that have nothing to do with the context. All these interpretations ignore the context. All of them do violence to sound principles of hermeneutics. All of them exalt metaphors over the central concept that the metaphors are supposed to point to. This passage, as we said, is clearly and simply understood by the contrast Paul makes here. There's something in the Corinthian lifetime that's partial. And Paul says there's coming a day when it's going to be complete. Completion of that which is partial. And what Paul says is partial, obviously, in the context is what? Prophecy and knowledge. Talking about a coming time when God's direct revelation to mankind will be complete. And that time, of course, arrived around the end of the first century, 90 AD or thereabouts, when the last New Testament book, the book of Revelation, was written after that book was written prophecies and revealed knowledge ceased the apostles were aware of this they understood that this wasn't to be some ongoing deal they understood that Jesus had promised them the holy spirit who would reveal to them specifically as a group the full body of knowledge of truth in their lifetime he says for example in John 16 i still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things which are to come. So glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. These apostles then became God's instrument along with the, the prophets. God's instrument in revealing his full work of the Old Testament and New Testament canon. They understood how this worked. The apostles were aware that God had closed the Old Testament canon. They were aware that there was a period of time when prophecy had ceased 400 years earlier with the ending of the Old Testament and the writing of the book of Malachi. And there was anticipation always 
that there would arise some other prophet, but there was silence, I should say, for that entire time. So they would have understood the same sort of completion and then silence when it comes to the New Testament. That's what Paul's speaking of here. A time when prophecy will cease. A time when knowledge directly revealed by God will come to an end or will pass away. Till that time, God had given prophets throughout the church to lay its foundations for the first 50 years or so. They lacked a complete New Testament, and yet what the prophets offered gave direct and momentary help to each congregation, and yet it was still limited. It was still partial. There were only partial glimpses into the full spectrum of what God was revealing. They were given only to meet the need at the moment. When the whole spectrum of God's prophetic word was complete, all these partial glimpses were to be done away with. In fact, Charles Hodge says a skillful teacher may, by diagrams and models, give us some knowledge of the mechanism of the universe, but if the eye be strengthened to take in the whole at a glance, what need then of a planetarium or a teacher? This is what Paul's telling them. There's coming a day when the partial is going to be passing away and the complete's going to be arriving. Now, he emphasizes this with a third uh, point here. In verses 11 and 12, he gives us comparisons from common experience so that we can understand what he's saying. And he basically gives two illustrations, two metaphors that clarify what he's just said in verses 9 through 11 explaining the replacement of this partial with the complete. His first one is that of a child growing into maturity. And he says there, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Paul's emphasis here isn't on physical development of the child. It's not on social status or any of those other things. What he's emphasizing is the development specifically of a child's reasoning and a child's speech. Because this is the explanation of the passing away of these revelatory gifts. Part of childhood, of course, is this growth, growing in our capacity, growing in our ability to articulate, growing in our ability to reason. Many times, You encounter kids who can even observe something and process it and have many, many things going on inside of their head and yet haven't quite developed to the point to be able to articulate all of the bundle of emotions that are going on. Sometimes they just retreat into a shell out of frustration. Paul says this is just, this is a process of childhood. It's a maturing process. A process where we grow in our ability to speak and to reason and to think. This, of course, is a sort of gradual process. It isn't overnight. It takes place slowly at times. And Paul, in fact, may be emphasizing that because he no doubt was aware that the cessation of these gifts was itself even a gradual process. In fact, if you 
Just take time to study the New Testament. You will find that yourself. If you open up, for example, the book of Acts, like we do here on Sunday night, we uh, do that in our Sunday night services. It was written by one of Paul's close associates, a man named Luke, who wrote this book to give us the early history of the church in its first 30 years or so. It begins with a notable abundance of signs and wonders and miracles, which Luke tells us were being done again and again by the hands of the apostles. But just as notable is the obvious decrease in those phenomenon as the book progresses. After chapter 5, there is quite a steep drop-off in miraculous occurrences. And by the year 55, when Paul would have written the book of 1 Corinthians, every indication from the book of Acts is that miraculous gifts were rarely occurring. In fact, the final nine chapters of the book, which covers span of probably 12 years, you hardly find any mention of miracles. That is to say, Paul himself was probably already experiencing some of this cessation. I find it always interesting that Paul, who at one point in his ministry, people were being simply healed by simply touching a handkerchief that was uh, 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 sent from Paul's body. At one point, he's healing people like that. And yet when you trace out some of Paul's later writings, for example, his prison epistles, books like Philippians or even First and Second Timothy, Paul had dear friends like Epaphroditus or Timothy himself, who he says were sick and suffering from ailments, and he apparently was unable to help them or heal them. You read books like Hebrews, which were written in the mid-60s, and suggests that the time of signs and wonders and miracles were part of a bygone era, a past period that belonged to, the writer of Hebrews says, those who had heard the Lord Jesus himself. That would have been the apostles. Those who had firsthand experience with Christ. More and more of God's authoritative message was being recorded in the New Testament. And as the writer of Hebrews says, it's now our job to bear witness to what these men have given. But over time, the church began to set aside these miraculous gifts as less desirable because they only produced what was partial. They only produced what was incomplete and God was beginning to deliver to them and to us His complete revelation in the form of the New Testament and the Old Testament. In fact, Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 2, you remember, he refers to it as the mind of Christ. Those things which in previous generations have not been made known to the sons of men, he says, but now have been revealed to us, that is, the apostles. Paul, Paul continues with these illustrations in verse 12 with another talking about the cessation of these gifts. He pictures a person looking into a mirror. Mirrors at that time were made normally out of polished metal, bronze or copper or ten, if you were wealthy, perhaps you would have a silver or a gold mirror. But the Corinthians would have been familiar with this. Their city was well known for this kind of polished bronze. They were one of the most famous places in the world for producing these mirrors. 
These metals were polished to reflect light, but even at their best, as you can imagine, looking into a piece of metal was, was producing a much lower quality reflection than mirrors do today. As a matter of fact, the quicksilver uh, glass mirrors that we're familiar with today wouldn't be invented for another 1,200 years. And so in this day, when you looked into a mirror, it was little better than simply looking over into a, a pond of stilled water. The reflection was poor. And that's why Paul says, we look into these mirrors dimly, the word says, or the, the word behind it is enigma. Obviously, we get our word enigma from that. And the idea is, is as you're looking into these, these prophecies, as you're looking into this knowledge, what you're seeing are divine things wrapped in enigmas. Not having the whole picture, you could not gain a full or a systematic understanding. Paul says when the complete, complete revelation is given, it'll be as clear as if you're looking at someone in the face. In fact, looking at yourself. As I mentioned, some people mix up metaphors here. They assume Paul's talking about seeing the face of Christ maybe his second coming, they argue that the miraculous gifts, therefore, are supposed to continue until the end of the church. But as we said, Paul's here not talking about Jesus' face, his own face is what he's talking about. And he's saying it will be as if we're seeing ourselves face to face. Instead of just some dim picture in some polished brass, even a crude mirror, what we're going to see is 3D, 365 degree image as if we were looking at ourselves with such clarity. It's even more clear as you look at the rest of verse 12. He says, Paul, Paul says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And the issue here is the knowledge of ourselves. Or, or to stay with the, uh, the, the image of the mirror, it's awareness or, or recognition of ourselves. That's what we do in a mirror, right? We look at ourselves. We gain knowledge about ourselves. We examine ourselves. And Paul's saying that the value of this complete revelation will be as beneficial as if you were stepping outside of yourself and looking at yourself face to face. He's not talking about the second coming of Christ. He's not even talking about knowing yourself the way that Jesus knows you. That would imply somehow that you someday will have the omniscient knowledge of Christ. There's no promise of that in Scripture. It's interesting, by the way, the only other time this word for mirror is ever used in the New Testament is in James 1.23, where it talks about a man who looks into the Word of God observing himself. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he's, and at once forgets what he's like. Paul may have had something like that in mind. Perhaps he had in mind a person who looks one day into the full glory of God's New Testament 
And what he sees portrayed before him, not only is the full plan of God's salvation, but he sees all outlined before him the foolishness and the evil of sin manifest in Christ and manifest in his word. E. Edmund Hebert says there in James 1.25, Unlike the imperfect metal mirror, this law is able to give the beholder a true and undistorted revelation of himself. He walks away, the Bible says he's a fool. He walks away unchanged, he's a fool. So Paul's telling them that this partial knowledge, which would be soon replaced with full knowledge, full revelation that is, and a knowledge, a knowledge which is going to give them a much fuller understanding of so many of the enigmas which still plague them, a much fuller understanding of themselves. All of it's going to come when the partial has passed away and the complete arrives. Well, Paul, Paul finally emphasizes this a fourth way, emphasizes the limited duration, limited value of these miraculous gifts by telling us uh, in verse 13 about the character of love. In contrast to all of these gifts which are about to pass away, all of them which are about to cease, Paul tells them, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. Obviously, they don't abide forever. Faith is only the evidence of things not seen. And so while obviously we walk at this present age by faith, and not by sight, when Christ returns, we no longer have that need. Or, or in a similar fashion, Romans 8.24 tells us hope that is seen is no longer hope. And so when Christ returns, we no longer know that hope in that way. It's no longer necessary. Paul is not focused, however, on the time of the cessation of these virtues. His point is that they abide. His point is that these three things remain. They will remain or they will abide beyond the cessation of tongues and prophecy and knowledge. And Paul's giving them as a triad of virtues on which these believers, on every believer really, on which they should focus instead of these revelatory gifts. These three things are more essential, more necessary in worship of God and in service to others than any single spiritual gift. Obviously, even among these, Paul says, the greatest of these is love because, as we said earlier, it never ends. One day our faith will become sight. One day our hope will become reality. But love will both now and for all eternity mark every child of God. So Paul's telling him, look, you, you want to be something in the ministry of the church and in the pursuit of God? You want to be something in, in God's kingdom? You want to count for something, stand for something? Don't go out and try to be some prophet. Speak with some sensational gift. Be a man, be a woman of faith and hope, but most importantly, of love. 
Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we recognize the weight that is set before us to accurately divide the word of truth. It is the mandate given to us by you. It is that which feeds our souls. But Father, I pray that you would continue to give us discernment and understanding even to this passage. Lest we somehow, some way, lose our focus and begin to pursue those things which are just temporal, whether they be some experience, some gift, or even some thing. Lord, we want to be standing always on those enduring gifts, on those enduring virtues, on those enduring treasures. First of all, Connect us to you by faith and hope. And then most of all, make us like you by love. Do this work according to your grace. We ask in Christ's name.